Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Chris, and this is Until You Make It in the Year 2021. Welcome. Today we got some classic conversation between me and Mr. Michael Yabish, and we even have a pop-in from an old guest, Joshua Lukowitz. We nerd out quite a bit <laughs> on, uh, on what makes a camera a good buy in the year 2021. So come on with us, sit down, relax, and enjoy this brand new episode, unless you're listening for the second time. Either way, enjoy. <laughs> so stupid. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. My name is Chris. Um, and not sitting across from me, but sitting across from me digitally, it's Mr. Michael Yadvish. Digitally. Hey, digital. Welcome to episode nine of Until You Make It. And we kind of last minute um, decided to do a little live stream for y'all. Um, so we're live on the Helium Journal YouTube channel right now. We're not sure who's going to tune in, but, um, you know, we figured we got the technology and, um, we have the means for spiders to talk with rats. <laughs> it's always sunny reference there. Oh man. Is that a wine glass? You know, a little Merlot in the evening to talk to you, Chris. What has Jackie turned you into, man? It softens me up when I like to, when I speak to you. I got good old fashioned water. So, uh, oh, what's on the agenda, Mike? You haven't been on the, on the show in, like, months. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> For our viewers, I, went, I took a hiatus. He's finally back. But yeah, um, I don't know, a few things on the agenda today. I made the title for this video, Q&A slash Demo Reels slash The Mandalorian and more, because that was all I could remember. Um, but I don't know, you want to lead off with, with your thing you were talking about, about Demo Reels and stuff? Yeah, so... I thought that was interesting. There's been an interesting thing that, that you've been working on. And also, I mean, I'm, I've been trying to work on one, but your, yours is a lot more, way further along than mine is. Uh, and that's a demo reel. What is the importance of demo reels? Because we talked about this of, of when do you make a demo reel? Because really, the only time you need to really make one is when you're seeking a job or, or, or coming out of college and applying for something. Um, and then you get a job and you start working in the field and then there's no need to keep up on it. Next thing you know, three years later, what do you have to show for the work that you did in those three years? And then how important is a demo reel to like the clientele that or the client or employer that you're sending it to? Because we know that you can watch these things for five seconds and just turn it off. How the heck do you get around that? What the heck do you do to make a demo reel interesting? I would like to talk about the demo reel that you made and why I think it's interesting and why I think it stands out. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were just chatting, um, me and you about, uh, just briefly before I've only had to really look through demo reels for like hiring somebody one time, but in general, I think everyone kind of gets that idea that, you know, your demo reel is the best of the best stuff that you have. And, uh, it really is your first impression to get an idea of what kind of creator you are. You know, specifically for video, photo, um, if it's a creative kind of uh, reel you're creating. So, it's, it's got to be good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and people will notice when it's not good. Um, you know, in a hiring situation, if I'm looking through demo reels and I see stuff that's not great, 
looking, lighting wise, editing wise. I have so many other reels that I have to get to anyway that are probably going to be better than that, that it's an automatic no in the first five seconds. So it's just, it's extraordinarily important to present something super high quality in that first five seconds. There's so many different types of demo reels. And I think this is an interesting thing too, because uh, even Jackie, who's one of our close friends, my girlfriend and actress, who is always trying to update her acting reel. And then one of the times, the first time that I helped her try to make an acting reel, I was trying to come at it from a editing perspective of trying to make the thing interesting because we watched so many acting reels and they're basically just clips back to back to back to back, clip after clip after clip. And they're not like edited in a nice way and they're not, or they're not edited together like in an interesting way. What if we edit it as like a video piece rather than a demo reel where the video itself is actually entertaining to watch? Maybe that would capture someone's attention better than just sitting through these 15 to 30 second clips that you have no context for and you're just watching someone act. I mean, so there's a difference between making a demo reel for entertainment purposes versus making a demo reel for like if you're specifically going after a single job. Because someone who's watched, who's really trying to vet you as a potential you know, person to work for them you know, that five seconds might be more like 15 or 30, like they'll watch longer to like, you know, properly vet you as long as it doesn't look like complete garbage. <laughs> but I totally get where you're coming from, that balance of, uh, you know, entertainment and whatnot. I remember you talking about trying to make Jackie's and it's kind of funny because in a way, editing cinematography demo reel is usually high energy and like fast paced and like you can get a lot of visuals in very quickly. But acting is kind of like you have to show longer clips and like... So my approach to editing her acting reel, the first time I took a crack at it, it was really funny. We edited the clips and we did stark contrast. So we just basically, you know, we, we eval evaluated all the, the work that she had, all the clips she picked out. Like, okay, these are what she thinks are the best clips and there are different genres of movies and different types of acting. So I would just take something that was scary and then match it with something that was funny. It like... It gave you a reaction as you were watching the acting reel. So I basically took advantage of the contrast of movies and work that she had. It made it really funny. That's a great idea. I mean, because you still have complete control over how you edit your content together. So that's pretty much the only thing you can really do in an, in an acting reel to like really spice it up. It, it depends on what, what kind of stuff you act into, though. Yeah. We ended up not going with it. We went with like the safer, more traditional approach and hang on wait i i have something to say to that is that a tomato <laughs> <laughs> that was so long see the fun part about this is i get to use my soundboard that i use for streaming <laughs> can you also use your voice manipulations yeah oh i totally forgot i was gonna do uh wait wait ready all right here let's get this gag out of the way real quick Hi, Michael. <laughs> it's Chris, your best friend. <laughs> no, you gotta you gotta sit down. You gotta be the witness to the murder. So it it was about ten o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. I had fun. So anyway, yeah, uh, acting demo reels are kind of a uh, a different beast. They are, and they get looked at by different people too. See, your demo reel—it's nothing like I've seen before. 
going through demo reels. But I've never seen anybody put together a reel like you have. Right. Well, to, to let uh, you know everyone know, I'm working on a uh, on a piece right now that's kind of an updated demo reel, but it's kind of like a hybrid. So I've I've been doing a lot in this in this setup, literally right here uh, for the Helium Turtle channel, and my whole thing is just casual, down to earth conversation, talking about what we love to do, like like we're doing right now. You know, it's just the way I like to present myself, and uh, I have a lot of fun doing it. So I was like, why don't I put that energy into my updated demo reel? And instead of making just like a compilation of like the best shots or like the my coolest things I've done. Why don't I actually just talk about them like while I show them, um, which is what I've been doing for the channel. It's not a very traditional demo reel, but from my perspective, it it only adds to to what it is. I feel like the way you structured it, and just to be clear to the uh, to the audience, uh, what Chris did was he talks to the person watching the video, but does it in a way where his personality shows. It's not like scripted. He's not reading from a teleprompter. He doesn't feel stiff. Um, he feels very personable. So not only do you get the work, but you get the man behind the work within the same video. Yeah, and that's what I, I wanted to come through because it's almost like, you know, that first impression that we're talking about with the demo where like the first 15 seconds, whatever, is like that's what someone's going to judge you on. And now they have even this additional thing to judge on, which is your appearance, how you present yourself. And if that's good, that's like two birds with one stone because that's almost what you get in the interview right away from meeting someone. Yeah, it's almost like you're you're undercutting the interview and just kind of almost cutting that part skipping out. Skipping ahead a little, a little bit. bit, yeah. Skipping ahead a little bit. Another element to that too, the fact that you are able to get in front of the camera and start speaking and just putting yourself on camera and the confidence that that shows, that's something that is hard for people to do. I'm running with it. So if anybody else wants to steal that idea, go ahead. I think it's I think it's great. If I was hiring somebody, I think I would like to see that. So Oh, I'd be incredibly impressed. Yeah. As you're saying this, now I'm wondering, could you apply the same thing to an acting reel? Is there stuff to talk about that could integrate that? I don't know. You probably could. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Food for thought. It's neat stuff. I mean, how how important is a demo re demo reel really? I mean, well, I'll put it to you this way: me personally, the demo reel is more important than the resume. Like, yes, I mean, I agree with that. I'll, and this is this is kind of you hear this too of like in creative positions like ours. It's like, do I really care if you went to a good school? Not really. What the hell can you do with a camera? Like, show me your skills. And it's just, it's just so funny, like, now that I'm in that position of, like, you know, around coworkers and, like, in a growing company, is like, yeah, of course. Like, I would rather have somebody that could make awesome content rather than someone that if theoretically could make awesome content because they went to a good school. And, and I say my boss, too, is because he showed me, like, NYU demo reels. That were just trash. And he's like, really? You went to NYU and this is what you did with your thing? I've heard things about NYU, not to bash NYU. But. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's, um, it's what you do that defines you. Sometimes I use my demo reel as a quick way to show somebody, or if I'm with somebody and like, 
oh yeah, Mike makes action movies or whatever, or lightsaber movies or whatever they describe. What are they? And say? what probably comes to mind when people say that is like you know amateur-y, you know. Stuff. Yeah. And then you show them Apex, and you're like, oh, never mind. Right, but do you show them a five-minute movie or do you show them a sixty-second reel? Because you don't want to waste their time in the moment. I, I use it. I use mine as a quick way just to show people what it is that we do, rather than use it as like a job thing. Based on what you just said, do you think you should update and make a new demo reel every single year? Should you always be updated? Um, every year might be. I mean, it depends what you do. That's the thing. You make a new demo reel when you feel you have enough. You progress new content yeah. that is better than your than your old stuff. Did you see season two of The Mandalorian, Chris? Yes, I did. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So did I. There, well, I jumped ship on one episode. You jumped ship on an episode? Wait, can I guess yeah. which one it was? I, can I? I don't remember. I see they're all, they all kind of blend together in my head. I don't remember individual episodes. It was episode two. I don't know, with that weird fish lady with the, with the eggs. Yeah, the, the fish lady with the eggs. <laughs> I stopped watching after the first 10 minutes. You literally stopped watching? Why? <laughs> we tried watching it. Uh, we just like 10 minutes in, we're like, what? What the hell are we watching? What is happening? What is this? Is this even the same show? I did not like the writing. I did not like the direction. I hated it. I don't, oh, I wish I could remember more clearly what happened, but you, so did you wind up even finishing it? I think I started again around episode four or five. Five, I think, is when I came back. I, I, I didn't even watch two. I just skipped over it. The episode right after that with the, with the freaking uh, ice spiders, that was an intense scene. Wait, that was the episode I'm talking about. Oh, I thought that was the ne- the episode after that. But yeah, I do remember that now kind of being just like a plotty kind of episode. There was no plot. It was a, like a no plot episode. Well, the I meant there was one plot, you know? It oh, was like, right, right. It was just like, oh, go here. And then that was just the journey to that place. I didn't know where the show was going. I was hoping season two was going to do something different than season one. Because the stakes got higher. I will admit that the first episode of, of the second season was a, a lot of the same. I mean, you could say that. Right. I thought the stakes of the plot and the characters was higher. And after where it ended off, that season two would do something different. And the pace would change. And it would be a little more uh, like on edge and just have a different pacing to the episodes. And it didn't. So what's interesting is that season two, episode two, is directed by Peyton Reed. Peyton Reed also directed the last episode. Totally different. Like, I hated the one episode, loved the last episode. Peyton Reed is also the same writer and director of Ant-Man 1 and 2. Uh, he comes from like a comedy action background, a lot of mostly comedy though. So there was a lot of comedic things in episode 2 that felt super out of place to me. To me, it didn't make sense. Like, what the hell is happening? Why is Mando making jokes? Like, or like, like I thought... They, when they were talk, setting it up, like, oh, you got to bring this lady and her eggs to this place. It's like, is this a joke? What, what, what is this? And then they tried to guilt him by being like, oh, I thought Mandalorians never broke a promise. And I was like, all right, that's getting a little nitpicky. And like, what does he care, right? <laughs> I don't know. Because I, I, he doesn't care. I don't care. It should be they don't break promises that like actually matter. <laughs> like, that didn't actually matter. But after that, after I got past that, I loved it. Um, How do you feel about uh, Bill Burr in the... Uh, oh, 
I love him. Did, did people like that in general? I don't know. I thought he was great. <laughs> Bill's been quoted for uh, making fun of Star Wars and making fun of Star Wars. Fans. I heard that. Yeah. 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 Um, and he still does. He he doesn't have any shame. Oh yeah. Well, he doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't care. He, I mean, when he was approached by John Favreau, it was like at a party. It was like at a kids' party that he was approached to, to have the role. They had him in mind to do the role too. Yeah, I think I think they said they literally wrote it for him. You know, guy cracking jokes with a snarky attitude. You know, they wanted to bring a a Boston accent to Star Wars. I guess <laughs> the Boston attitude. I liked him in episode or in season one rather when he had that one off episode. I was like, oh, that's that's nice. He had a cameo, but then when they brought him back for his for his uh, episode in season two, I thought that was really really well done. And I, th- I thought the whole aspect, not even just his character, but the story that they were telling about, you remember that sit down they had? They're at the table where he's talking to the- In the in the season two episode? Yeah, where he's talking to that Imperial officer. Yeah, I love that scene. It, you can see it, on, it was great acting. You can see it on his face. That was probably too one of the, uh, there were probably two moments where I was like open mouth agape and that was one of them when he, when he shoots the officer. What a great build to that scene. And you're right, it was just great acting and built to really be like, yeah, combined with the fact that uh, that he has his helmet off and everything, it was just a great, great build, you know? I thought it gave his character a good story arc, which we didn't have before. He had no arc before, basically. I thought that was beautiful. I, I, I thought it was really cool to see some of the insight on what the Imperials think. Some of that war propaganda that they were talking about, some of that PTSD. Yeah, because they never get into that stuff, man. And it's like, well, that's why I mean, a lot of people are saying, too, is like they'd love to see even a whole show from the empire point of view it's never gone into that much so when it does happen people seem to love it and i i certainly did you know in the last jedi as much as like you could talk about the last jedi there was an there's a very interesting one-off line that never gets talked about and never gets dived into which i thought was a huge missed opportunities when benicio del toro they're like in the ship with like him and finn and rose or something and he brings up this hologram and it's like sell to the good guys and the bad guys you know the whole war is about money he talks about like he brings up this little thing about like selling x-wings and selling ships and how like these arms dealers will sell to the good and to the bad that aspect of it never gets talked about anywhere else and they never dive any deeper than that surface level of just having that one offline that's the only interesting thing about his character but of that movie did you did you like the stutter or no uh that was that was his choice supposedly. I could have said no. I think I, I think I remember reading that 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 was his acting call that he wanted to bring something to the character. They could have just said no. We don't want you to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things they could have done with that movie, but they didn't. So let's just leave well enough alone. But I think the root of this conversation goes to the last episode of The Mandalorian and what you think about deep fakes. I have a few things to say about this. So, if anyone isn't familiar, in the, in the last episode of season two... Spoilers. Stop watching now. Yeah. The spoiler alert, um, so to speak. But they... Uh, so, they brought back um, old Luke Skywalker. Just old like Luke Skywalker? <laughs> well, uh, well, back 1977, I'm talking about. Old, old young Luke Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's like, how do they do that, you know? And so, you know, the, we've seen this technique a couple times in the last movies where they use CGI to um, de-age actors. Rogue One used it to bring Moff Tarkin back from the dead. Yeah. And they, uh, they used an, an actor that was uh, 
similar facial structure as kind of a base and then used, um, I believe, just a series of reference images and, uh, you know, all these kind of 3D tricks to make Grand Moff Tarkin. Now, that was even a divisive choice. Um, you know, people were either kind of loved it or thought it looked too much like a video game. The more I watched it, the more I was like, eh, it's not there. But it was definitely closer than what they got <laughs> in with Mark Hamill's character. And basically everyone hated this one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, people have taken deep, have done deep fakes of that very same scene with reference images of Mark Hamill. Oh, and it's better. And it's turned out better. <laughs> better. So everyone's saying, why didn't you just do that in the first place? And there's all this like weird controversy surrounding using, because deep fake is still a very new technology in the grand scheme of things, right? And it's just, I don't know why it's not widely used, but it feels like it's because of how controversial it is with like, you know, stuff like privacy. That's what it feels like to me. But then everyone's saying they own the rights to, you know, Mark Hamill and is used for the character. So I don't know. There's a ton of stuff that goes into it. But at the end of the day, it looks better. <laughs> yeah. See, in my opinion, it comes down to budget and time. If they didn't have the time to research how to do a deep fake or even hire anybody to do a deep fake. I, I just feel like that comes down to the time and budget restrictions of a TV show. And even though it's Disney, because on season one, they had to bring in some help from the 501st, which is like the community of people who essentially cosplay as like stormtroopers. And there's like a whole community of people who have their own like stormtrooper armor and everything. They brought those guys in because they ran out of stormtrooper armor. You are Star Wars. How do you run out of Stormtrooper <laughs> armor? <laughs> but that's but that's the difference between a movie and a TV show. The movie has the time and budget to make Grand Moff Tarkin or Princess Leia look as good as that did. And they don't have the time and budget to make Luke Skywalker look as good as that. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff at the end of the day behind the scenes that I'm sure no one will ever really know why it turned out that way. But um, it was just a funny thing. My sister's actually talking in the chat right now. She said... Coming from someone who doesn't know all like the technical details, she didn't think Luke's was that bad at all. So, uh, you know, there's probably some credence to that of people who uh, don't pay that close of attention, who are looking at the eyeball and who are looking for that catch light and like looking at lighting, you know, because that's us really. To be fair, when Luke is not moving or talking <laughs> or doing anything, he looked pretty fine. He looked good. For me, it was the animation. For me, it was it was like the lot. It was the emotion. He was dead. He's basically just lifeless, dead inside. Well, it was came down to performance. So I'm wondering if they did that intentionally, because I was like, why even have an actor just sit there like this? Like he didn't do anything. That's what came off unnatural to me. I was like, you know, normally people move just a tiny bit when they're like, and I felt like he was just like a rock. I was yeah. like, did they have him do that intentionally so they could try and make it more believable? I was like, that was what stood out to me was the motion, actually. I didn't think his face looked terrible initially until you got to like the nod and stuff. I was like, all right, something's effed up here. Yeah. I, I feel like a part of them had to be a little bit scared too. Scared to cast a different actor because Sebastian Stan, the actor, looks like young Mark Hamill. And even Mark Hamill tweeted that he has, he's like, he's tweeted that Sebastian Stan has his blessing to play young Luke. But if you cast it, Sebastian, in that role right then and there, 
it wouldn't give you the same nostalgia. I think they were really scared to ruin the character, basically. Just because he's such a beloved character, I feel like they played it safe and he's just, just stand there. Don't do anything. You're Luke. Like, you don't have to do anything. To me, that might have been the direction because they have a little bit of fear of hurting the character or I don't know. I agree with that. I think there, that was definitely an element. There's a lot that we're never going to know of why that came out to be what it is. But at the end of the day, still a badass sequence. Yeah. I love that. Give me goosebumps. Yeah. Yeah. Give me goosebumps. Yeah. That was the other, the other wide open mouth moment. Yeah. So, uh, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about because when, when everyone was talking about comparing like a deep fake version to what they had, you know, everyone was talking about why is that better? Why does it look better? And is it the lighting? And a lot of people pointed to the eyes. Naturally, everyone's drawn to the eyes of the face because that's, you know, where we look at people the, the most. It's where we get the most emotion from, you know, the window to the soul and all that. And so people were asking, why does why do the eyes look better in the deep fake version than in a deep 3D render? And a lot of it pointed simply to the catch light. The catch light in the eye was brighter. I'm not sure if there even was one in the um the original version um and for people that that don't know a catch light is basically when a light shines directly in the eye you know it reflects off and gives you that tiny little bright spot you see it emphasized in a lot of animation a lot of japanese anime particularly right you get the big white circle yeah i'm not sure what the philosophy behind it is for some reason it gives the illusion of life in somebody what i wanted to talk about was they mentioned this Accordo Digital did a, a uh, behind the scenes of like visual effects with the visual effects supervisor of the uh, Hobbit movies and the uh, Lord of the Rings movies, you know, Peter Jackson's guy uh, from Weta Digital. And he pointed out that very same thing, uh, that when they were making King Kong, the way they made it seem like Kong was dying uh, with his eyes still open, oh, is they yes, gently they fade that. that catch light. That's literally it. And he pointed out in that moment of, you know, that's the illusion of, of life. The way you get that is by adding a fake catch light. For whatever reason, uh, it works because um, that's one of the reasons that the deep fake um, looked a lot better. It's because the eyes seemed more lively. You know what we got to talk about? Hmm. Exciting, exciting news. Have you heard about all these new aperture lights coming out? Yes, the little affordable ones. The 100X, 200X, 100D, 200D, and now the 60D and 60X. Oh, yeah. Didn't know that. They just keep putting out new gear. Like, <laughs> so what, what I found out is me and Josh have kind of been digging deeper in this because I think I might want to get one. Oh, the X? Wait, what's the X? Yeah, so the X is bicolor and the D is daylight, um, which I actually just found that out the other day. I kind of put two and two together of like, oh, the D in 120D stands for daylight because <laughs> it's daylight balanced. Oh, you know what? Is that a different brand? Are you seeing Amaran? Yeah, Amaran. Because that's just the name of the product line from Aperture. That's what it was. See, I thought that's what you were talking about because that's the ones that I seen that were a cheaper alternative. Well, that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about. That's what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's aperture, it's just under a different uh model. The X is like better than what we have. Yeah, so 
to give a frame of reference, the one, well, I'm not sure about the X, but I know the 100D is the same brightness or brighter than the 120D Mark II. And the 200D is the comparable to the 300D Mark II. So that's, that's kind of your comparison. They have a Lux chart on the website and the X's are a little less bright because of that bicolor um, capability, but still 350 for the uh, 200X or the 200D. This is just another example of um, Aperture being the number one go-to for, uh, for smaller video creators like ourselves. The only negative things that I saw from a video that like, was using them was that they, I mean, they're more, mostly a plastic build, so they're not as durable. And uh, the 200D, the fan is incredibly loud. I didn't hear incredibly loud. I heard louder than the 120D Mark II. I watched the video and heard it. You can't, you basically Did they do a decibel reading on it? Because audio, audio and video could be, um, you know. No, it was loud. That, well, I, I just want, I just wonder how, I wonder if Aperture has a decibel reading. If you have to boom a scene, if you're booming something, you have that light in the same room. Well, it's not, it's, it's not like I'm surprised. <laughs> the thing's cheap and puts out more light than a 300D Mark II, which we know is uh, is a sun <laughs> it rivals the sun itself so it's not like it's surprising but yeah that that is one unfortunate downside of the 200 model um i wonder if it's the same on the on the x so i, I we're just gonna have to see when uh when these things come out the bicolor function of it that is appealing to me even though i just bought a bunch of colored gels yeah i mean it's just one less thing you gotta worry about you know it just saves time in assembly yeah. You could match tungsten, you could match uh fluorescent, you could go to 4200 Kelvin, you could match fluorescent. So, mm-hmm. you could, yeah, you could do whatever, man. I'm thinking of picking myself up a um a uh, not a knockoff, but just a, a different brand of the uh the light dome cuz I have the mini at work, but I want to get the full size for um for stuff that we do for here, for portraits. Um um, but I also, I was looking and I was like, cause they have three sizes, a, a 27 inch, which is kind of like the light dome mini, the 35 inch, which is the standard parabolic, uh, soft box size. And they have a, uh, 47 inch, which when you put it out on a tape measure is freaking ginormous. <laughs> 47 wide across? Yeah. It's like five feet. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is what I've seen people use for portraits. Because it's just, you know, right? You know, the more surface area you have, the softer the light is going to be, the more fall off you have on a face. In other words, it looks like there's a giant window in front of you, which is going to look super, super natural. The, the 35 is kind of a balance between those two things. You still have pretty good fall off, but it's also more portable, can fit into tighter spaces. So I think the 47 is really, if you're going to be explicitly doing that portrait stuff or, you know, need that kind of diffusion. And of course, if you can leave it up all the time in the studio space, then absolutely, that's what I would do. But yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely like it's freaking huge. <laughs> Speaking of quality and gear. Yes. Uh, Chris, as you know, we are in the market to rebuy our Blackmagic 6K. What are we? You don't say. <laughs> it just so happens our other one got a little a little damp so we have to a little moist you know a little a little moist it took a little shower not because of anything we did 
No, because if we were smart, we would have bought insurance and we would have insured the camera because it's, it's an expensive purchase. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know. What looks good? What, what looks tasty? There's a 12K camera that came out. I wonder what that looks like. Pretty neat. Pretty neat. What do you think? I like it, but I also know like next to nothing about it. <laughs> I know I know the specs, and I know someone who has one because of the last episode we did, Mr. Uh, Tyler. Oh my God, his last name's escaping me. But um, uh, Tyler from the last episode we did, you know, he's a uh, pretty much a freelance guy. I hesitate to say freelance because he just does so so many high quality clients, but that that really is what he is. And, you know, he was saying he reinvests almost everything he makes into his business. When that camera came out, he's like, you know, the value you get out of it combined with the fact that he specializes in slow motion videography, he was like, that is the next level for me. And it it made total sense for him. But does it make sense? It made sense for him, but does it make sense for us? I don't know. I don't know, Mike. It's it's tough. I, I really don't think we need it 12k right off the bat just resolution no one needs that no one doing what we're doing really needs that we talked about this before too of like what does resolution offer you it offers you flexibility in post-production potentially finer noise but separate separate from going into details about the sensor just resolution itself it's like that's the that's what you're getting you're getting flexibility in post-production I would I have to go into the other what else you're getting but off the top of my head it's like not really the right fit for us I don't think. See I agree with you and that's why I mean just from a a perspective of uh compatible gear you you almost really can't put that thing on a Ronin S. Yeah, then you that's right you get to that the form factor. Totally forgot it's a big piece of equipment. It looks like a broadcast camera it belongs on a shoulder rig exactly. Or it belongs on a tripod. It would restrict our way of filmmaking. It would basically go against all that because you get the mount of V-mount battery to the thing. Now you just add more weight. You're definitely not going to be able to balance this thing on a on a Ronin. Either get like an easy rig. It doesn't fit in with the gear we have currently assembled and the workflow we have currently built out. It would make things harder instead of easier at the end of the day. Logistically. Yeah. Right. Monetarily too. We would have to adjust to this camera rather than the camera, you know, working for us. Yeah. Working for us. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in an age when things are generally getting smaller and lighter with each generation, you know, this for obvious reasons goes against that. Like it, it should because of what it can do, but it, um, it would just be a one more hurdle to actually be able to utilize it in our, in our setups. Uh, what what improvements would you like to see on the 6K besides uh, weatherproofing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a couple of mine right off the bat from just using it from like the music video and Apex and stuff. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't that much wrong with it. I was still not impressed with the noise. Um, the dual gain was great, but I think a lot of people get confused by that. Because there is a difference between how the noise presents itself when you're using those, when the dual gain mode switches on versus what the native ISO rating for the camera is. Because the native ISO rating is not where you get the least noise, it's where you get the most dynamic range. 
a lot of people mix those two things up and they're they're very different things um so the native iso for that camera i forget what it is in the 800 in the first gain range it might be 800 but in the second gain range it's 3200 you have to double check me on that but i'm like 90 percent sure it's 3200 3200 introduces a little bit of, and you'll say like wait why am i getting so much noise in this it's because that's the native iso when the dual gain kicks in is where you get the least noise which is 1250 1250 is still not that bright <laughs> you know for for shooting night scenes you know i think it got overhyped a little bit with like oh dual gain functionality too good yeah noise there's gonna be no noise it performs great do not get me wrong it performs great but um, you still, you got to introduce a lot of light if you want to get that quality. We shot most of Apex at 32. It did well. It wasn't a, uh, you know, a Sony a7 III or whatever, you know, what everyone compares noise to these days, which is kind of unfair because that camera was just a different beast. But um, we couldn't go past 32. Once you, once you hit four or five, for my taste, it was just way too much noise. You know, I, I, need a, I need a clean image. So that was just one thing about that camera that, you know, obviously we got a lot of experience there because we shot a whole night movie. <laughs> we shot a whole movie at night. But anyway, regardless, it's, it's, you know, it's good to do your own research and like actually look into what fits your needs. And if that's a big part of it, then, uh, you know, make sure you research it well. Yeah, so 6K it is. Love it. Yeah. What else was I, was I looking at? I mean, well, you have the um, the red Komodo, but that's also not really a great fit because uh, of the noise on it too. It's just n- not good enough, um, I think. See, I haven't looked at this stuff in so long. <laughs> well, we'll have to ask Josh because he got the, the red Komodo. Josh, are you, are you on here, Josh? Are you on the live stream? Do you think the Komodo could fit into our workflow the komodo easily fits onto anything that the black magic 6k does it's so tiny well i mean work uh fit into our workflow as far as like mounts lenses batteries yeah no all all that stuff is is pretty damn compatible is it a full frame i don't know i'm gonna try and get him in the chat here i just posted it to the thing see if he pops in josh said the problem with red and komodo in general is no in-body anything so he means nobody um you know, noise reduction, no IBIS also. Well, the 6K didn't have IBIS either. Do you think that's a big part of RED in general? Of, you know, say we're talking about, um, you know, why the a7 III has such a clean image. Does that come from sensor technology or does that come from, like, the technology outside of the sensor in the camera? Like, is it post-processing? Is it, what is all that crap? You know, everyone, uh, Josh says both. That's that's not really an answer, but <laughs> <laughs> unacceptable. No, but you know what I mean. It's like everyone knows. It's like oh, when you you know the lower gain you go, the less noise you get. It's like, but where does the variability come in between different camera manufacturers? Is why can't everyone do the same thing as them? You know, I don't know. It's a whole thing. Yeah, I know, Josh. I know. We're asking a lot of big questions here. This is just stuff that's coming to my mind. But at at the end of the day. You know, the reason we're asking all these questions um, is because we're, in, we're looking at, at options and it's just interesting to see, you know, what fits into the workflow that we have built for like a, you know, a small production studio. And um, I think other people would like that um, too.
Josh says he has he has a lot to say that he that he can't type about um and he's probably more knowledgeable than I am about that stuff. Do you want to put him in real quick? Yeah. Well, he just bought the Komodo, didn't he? Yeah, that's why I, that's why I I asked him to come on in the first place. Ooh, I want to ask him about the difference between red codec raw and black magic raw. Mr. Lukowitz. Am I the lucky caller? <laughs> Here are the lucky callers. You have won a gift card to Smacky Smacky Joe's. Congratulations. Oh my God. Honey. So let me just say that um, Josh Lukowitz is not only the owner of a red Komodo, but a red Scarlet that he bought back in the day. And you've uh, long been a proponent of their hardware and their software and all that stuff. And, uh, I mean, how could you not be? This stuff looks so good, right? I think it's a great camera. I think part of it for me, too, was a couple of things. A learning experience, which I'm still learning, to be frank. I think I've gotten gigs as a result of the camera. Someone says, oh, that camera is good, or that camera will get us raw footage. But most of the people that I understood, and, and you know, I think this has changed a bit now that raw is a little bit more common with other cameras, but... Typically, people would use red because they wanted the codec. So you were kind of forced to do that, right? They had a really good one, the early raw codecs. And they're still not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, in, in, no camera in, in industry timelines, they're still the baby. Yeah, they, they, they haven't been around. What, what is it? 2000, 2005, 2006? I can't even remember. Yeah, you would know better than me. But, but yeah, for sure. Did you have anything to say while we were talking about... Um, where noise comes from and like yeah the chain of all this stuff i'll use i'll use an interesting example which which by the way sorry i'm missing some of this i was i was catching up on the inauguration i hadn't gotten a chance oh hey you're good man um p.s it it, it seems like and this is partially opinion based partially factual (laughs) most camera companies pick a thing to be good at and the problem with some of the larger camera companies, I'll use Canon as a good example, is they make amazing cameras, but they have to avoid putting certain features in certain cameras so they don't cannibalize their other lines, right? Right. We've, we've seen this a, a few different times where camera companies have to be careful to not hurt the sales of uh, their other products. Every company does this. Sony does this. Canon does this. Red does I mean, this is, I think, just a technology thing, right? You have to make a new thing that people are going to want. And if you put too many features in the thing, then you can't come out with a new thing. I know DJI has done it and really pissed off a lot of customers with how quickly they turn over products. So I think camera companies are the same. As far as you know, low light, I think a large part of it has to do with sensor technology. What type of sensor are you using? Did you develop that sensor? Are you? I didn't know this. Some camera companies license sensors from other camera companies. that's kind of like how uh smartphones use like apple's using a samsung display now it's kind of like exactly and nobody knows right and they you know the company can say oh well you know we have our proprietary this and we're doing and that's true but the you know the, the actual hardware a lot of it's sometimes the same so you might buy a camera that's using a sony you know a, a sony chip in it all of it comes down to what's the sensor like what type of sensor is it and then what are you doing once the sensor captures all those photons, all the light hitting the sensor like a piece of film would have? What happens when you process it? Some companies have really crazy built-in stuff. That's where they've spent a lot of time and money. So your image looks really good out of the box. Some companies, like Red or whatever, they believe the opposite. The idea is you want to have all that flexibility later. 
You're going to capture all this data. And then later you'll make decisions about how much noise reduction you want to do. So. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Yeah. That's a lot of what we're talking about is how the technology differs and how uh, one could fit into your workflow better than, uh, than another one, perhaps. Right. What boxes are you trying to check? So you guys do a lot of action stuff as of late, specifically Mike. Is a global shutter important for that? I think there would be a big argument as to why you would want something like a Komodo besides price and size and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, if you're trying to turn things around fast, do you want a camera that you're going to have to spend a little more time later on making look better potentially? Starting OBS, things are happening. (laughs) Oh yeah, now we're in business. (laughs) So he's using his Komodo as a uh, webcam right now. The heck? That's so cool. I was wondering why it looks pretty high quality. <laughs> this is an interesting Komodo thing. So look, this is the best part. I'm changing it from an app. Right. And their app for that wow. camera, pretty damn good from what I've heard. And People even use this is a monitor. Yeah. And ev- well, even using the ability to use it as a uh, fo- right. pull focus on it. <laughs> look at this live demo we got. It's pretty hot. And you can, mar- you can mark on that. And you could do all everything you would do with a normal focus puller. My vested interest in joining this is to convince Mike to get this camera or to, <laughs> to get this camera. That's the only reason I'm here. That's the only reason I'm here. Uh, yeah, no, that app, that app is pretty powerful. Oh, so you're, you're pro Komodo over the BM. Well, it, it'll just make me feel less bad about making a bad decision or something. <laughs> um, I think it's just what you're, what you're kind of looking for in a, in a camera like to me, I'll just take the the pros. The pros of the Komodo, it's cheaper than most of their other cameras, which is nice. It's still very expensive, but compared to the rest of their line, yeah. um, you can use third-party stuff finally, which is nice. You're not stuck using all their... You know, no proprietary, proprietary batteries, no proprietary media. And the thing's and small. It's meant to be a crash cam. Two inches by two, or four inches by... It's, it's a four-inch four cube. cube. Yeah. How heavy is it, though? Two pounds. Two pounds. You could rig it out to the nines and add a ton of stuff or you could put nothing on it. So for me, two batteries on the back, you could even have one battery on the back if you really want to run on a gimbal or something. You don't have to have a monitor on it because it has a built-in monitor at the top. Um, you can have it there for reference. And a lens, or in this case, I have to use an adapter, but a lens mount. Yeah, it's a hell of a little thing, man. Definitely nothing like it it's for that high-quality stuff going into it. A bunch of the forums I was in had people split decisions about cameras and they were looking specifically at Komodo, they were looking at Blackmagic, and they were looking at C70. If you're doing more videography work, I think the C70 is important because you have built-in XLR, because you have built-in ND filters, yeah. and because you have more flexible codecs as far as not having to shoot raw, so it's actually a benefit to you. Yeah, it's, right? more, it's more built out for that. Right. You can shoot S-Log, you're still going to get a really flat image, you can still grade that with a lot, and, and this stops a dynamic range on these cameras from the test I've seen, it's crazy. They're, they're, they're hitting around the same amount of stops. Like, they claim like 16 and a half, I think in reality it's like 14, right? Sure. Um, and part of the way Canon's getting away with that, again, talking about built-in stuff, their sensor is dual gain ISO, mm. but it's compositing them. So with live, it's, it's exposing your image brighter and darker, and then it's putting it together and you're getting an HDR. You're getting more stops at dynamic range because it's processing two different streams almost of, of ISO. Does that make sense? You see a shot outside where it's like shadows under a tree and then bright sunny right, day with right. clouds, and you're not clipping the You're the not clouds. clipping either, yeah. 
So that that's insane. And I think the way they're doing that is with two ISO settings that are like, is it a huge deal? It doesn't have raw. I don't know that it totally depends on what you're going for. Yeah. 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 That's all it is at the end of the day. This is tough. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to like, we're not big, I mean, I'm not a big slow motion guy. We don't go crazy with slow motion like Tyler does. So it doesn't make sense that I get some crazy camera that can shoot 240p and 4k that doesn't like yeah cool maybe but if i had that would i do that now because i have it so it doesn't make sense as a purchase though um but it opens doors for future stuff just having more options right now you have more options more options yeah the black magic 6k is an amazing camera it stands up to any camera i've seen you know i I, I watch a lot of these tests because i see blind that i don't know anything because i put three cameras against each other and i'm always wrong yeah everyone runs into that but yeah um, yeah um, especially when it's like gone through YouTube and you're watching on a phone or whatever, you're never going to buy a camera and be like, Oh, this is like, this is a perfect time <laughs> to buy a camera. It's only going to yeah. be better. It's There's so many better. options. Yeah. It goes back to two conversations of like, uh, the next best thing is always right around the corner. And then it was when I was doing my microphone tests and it's like, they're not bad. They're just different. <laughs> and that's such a weird thing. It's like, it feels like one should be better over the other. It's like, it's not, they're just different. It's like, there's no right answer. It's just what works better for for you. You're right. I want to rent lenses one day. Renting lenses can get expensive, though, for for multi-day shoots. That's where it comes. It's like, the good stuff, even the rent isn't cheap. I know. It could be like two grand for a weekend. Yeah. I feel like now lighting and lenses are the biggest standout things. Yeah. That's going to be the, uh, more of a factor than it used to be. Oh, Josh, a funny thing. Uh, I just learned this the other day. What was I looking at? I was watching a video. Oh, it was a, uh, uh, a lighting like masterclass thing. And it was one of these times where I was like, I wonder if this guy is going to say anything that I don't already know. I'm like, probably he's, he's an industry guy. You know, I'm, I'm not crazy with like that stuff so i was like let me watch it was like 30 minutes but one thing that i didn't know which is you know somebody asked a question about about anamorphic and he was talking about what he had on the camera at that moment and he was like oh well, this is a uh you know a 40 mil anamorphic we got in here so it would be a, a 20 mil spherical and i was like wait what did he just say i didn't know that because you do the two times squeeze it also doubles the focal length which is why a long time ago, I thought to myself, I was like, why do they sell all these longer Long anamorphic Where's lenses? Wide? Where's, Where's the wide wides? Yeah. They already are. <laughs> I had the same. At that point, exact... I was like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> but, I'm, no. you know, you just don't know that stuff, you know? I had the same thing as you, dude, one day. I was also looking. I was like, so, like, everybody's <laughs> just buying a 40. Like, I know 50 mil is, like, yeah. the magic number for a lens, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A focal length 50 millimeter gets you really far <laughs> and really close and blah, blah, blah. Why are they only making 40? And I assume the exact same thing. <laughs> oh, man, that was pretty funny. That was like a revelation. I was like, that's why. And those are starting to get chilly. I know, I think Vazen's the one company now. Yep. Like, that, that to, I agree with you as far as lenses. That to me would be the next thing I would yeah. want to be like, oh, man, it'd be really cool. And I think you can argue buying anything to yourself, but I think you could argue lenses will last longer. If you take care of them. <laughs> and, and no matter, again, this, the sensor or whatever imaging 
Yeah, the it should it should be. I mean, because I mean, if you just look at it like today, people still use vintage lenses from the seventies. <laughs> like people are still using them. <laughs> Favorite lens is still that Russian lens, man. Yeah, yeah. So glass is glass, I guess, right? Well, Chris, didn't someone tell you something interesting about camera body versus glass? Something about like they'd rather have good glass on a bad body than a good body and bad glass. Something I think like that, that I think that is the way. It goes. Josh is nodding his head. I see. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, especially today, we're just talking of like you know, bodies aren't aren't nothing's really better. It's just different. You know. I think the only time lenses don't age well is when you just start talking about larger formats. Like I know certain lenses don't cover certain format sizes. So as you imagine, as cameras continue to evolve, eventually the image planes start getting really big, like Vista Vision. Like, right. You know, certain lenses don't fit on certain sensors because the sensor's gotten so big. So yeah, you start getting that's true. Yeah. Obviously, that's like down the line, but God. Yeah, lots to talk about. This I know this is so fun. I'm having so much fun. Well, that makes me think that I should just stick with the 6K and then invest or look for higher quality glass and upgrade our glass from what we've Could been be. using. Could be. I think we're pretty much talked out, guys. <laughs> we talked about so much stuff. Boy, this has been an, uh, a fun episode. Um, thank you for everyone who tuned in on the live stream. Thank you to Mr. Josh for enlightening us with some fantastic camera details. Thanks for letting me crash. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mike, it's been a good one. It's good to see good you. To see you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see everybody next time on Until You Make It. Thank you so much for listening and or watching, and we will catch you next time. For more content, check out Helium Turtle Studios on YouTube, where we post our short films, video tutorials, and behind the scenes.